Let's pray. We want to dig right into the word here. It's it's 11 o'clock, so let's pray together and ask God to meet us in the word. Thank you for your word, Lord. It's seed, which when it lands in, in good hearts, hearts that have been prepared by the tilling and the weeding of your spirit, it brings forth fruit. So I pray that today there wouldn't just be seeds landing and staying as seeds or being choked out or being dried up, but that there would be fruit. There'd be germination by the word. There'd be growth. There would be harvest taking place in our marriages and in our relationships. Because of your word today, I pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're doing a series called Grace-Based Marriage. And uh, I've been hearing reports about home groups as we're talking about marriages. There's strengthening, there's refreshing, there's transforming stuff being happening and taking place in the marriages. And I've asked you to send me uh, questions, email, um, handing them to me. And uh, I want to read this morning one question I got. It's an anonymous question, but it's about love in marriage because the topic for this morning is love, which reminds me at the top of your sheet there where it says roles, X that out. This is a low-tech way to revise a document. Just like cross it out and write in love. Okay, roles was last week. Love is this week. But here's the question. It's It's a painful question about love in marriage. Question is, how do you revive a marriage of many years when the love is gone? I've prayed to the Lord many times over this. That's a painful question. If you are the one who asked this question, I hope you're here today, and our, our hearts go out to you. We, we long that, I mean, hopefully you've been able to share this with somebody in your home group, and a brother, if you're a man or a sister, if you're a woman, has been able to come alongside you and, and pray with you, comfort you, um, strengthen you, um, Encourage you, point you towards Jesus' power, Jesus' love, Jesus' promises. If this is you, we want to help. We want to stand by you because this this is a painful question. And the situation sounds hopeless when you first read it, right? If a marriage has lost love, you know, what can you do? And I think most people in our culture would say, well, if, if, if love has been lost, I think most people, Dr. Phil, dear Abby, you know, Oprah, they'd say, well, then it's hopeless, I mean, if if love has been lost, there's nothing you can do. It's time to move on. Uh, Maybe there's still some time for you to find your true soulmate, however they might describe it. So many people in our culture would say that this is hopeless, but Jesus would not say this is hopeless. It's not what he would say. Jesus, if you asked him this question, and this was the pain in your heart about your marriage, he he would look look you in the eyes with great love for you, with his eyes burning with love for you, care for you, and zeal for the glory of God. And he would say, first of all, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And then he would say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he would say, what's impossible with people is possible with God. So if we heard Jesus say all that, and then if we answered, okay, but Jesus, if love is gone, what can we do? 
I think Jesus would say, there's a big difference between love and romance. Right? You can't make romance happen. You by yourself can't make romance happen in your marriage. But you, by the power of Jesus, his grace in your heart, you can continue to love in your marriage. Regardless of how your spouse responds, you can continue to love. And so if this is your question, as you get comfort from Jesus, feel his strength, his love for you, his compassion, his care, as you continue to love your, say, unresponsive spouse, you are fulfilling your side of God's purpose for your marriage. Namely, that it would be a display of Christ's love for the church. You're, you're fulfilling that, just, just you. And God could use your love, your faithful, steadfast love, to restore the romance in the marriage. God could do that. We've probably all heard stories. I remember doing a remarriage ceremony 10 years ago for a couple that had been divorced for three years. And one of them kept loving through thick and thin. Heartbreak, heartbreak, heartbreak. Kept loving, kept loving, kept loving. And we did a remarriage ceremony, and they're still together today. God can do amazing things. There's no guarantee that the romance will be restored. But God could do that. So what I want you to see is that the situation is not hopeless, because even when romance is gone from a marriage, you can continue to love. You can keep loving, regardless of how your spouse responds. But that should raise the question, there's no romance. Where does that love come from? How do you keep loving in that kind of a situation? It's a big question, isn't it? And it's really a question we all have to, to ask because, I mean, even if your marriage is like full of romance, you still have sometimes a hard time loving, don't you? Because you like you got the flu, right? Or because uh, your spouse got an offender bender. A little hard to love right then. Or uh, your spouse forgot to fill up the gas tank and you're late for your appointment and it's not empty. Okay? Or Johnny's regressing in his potty training or whatever it might be, right? Let's just get real. There's as much romance as there may be in your marriage, there's always times when it's hard. And at those times, where does love come from? Where will you get love in your heart for your spouse at those times? And this isn't just a question that married people need to ask. Single people, I mean, all of us have relationships. We all have friendships where there's times when it's hard to love. And so this is a question we all need to ask. And many places where it's answered, but I'd like you to see in Colossians 3, 12 through 14, where it's answered there. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. The women looked at this passage, the women's connection. So you're, you're ahead of us men, women. But... Uh, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. I'd like to pass one out to you. I'd like you all to have a copy of this passage in your hand so we can study it together. Colossians 3, 12 through 14, page 984 in the Bibles we're passing out. Now, let me throw something else out here while you're looking this up. It's kind of a side parenthesis. A lot of people believe, and you'll hear it in our culture a lot, that all the religions teach basically the same thing. A lot of people believe that. And what they all teach, basically the same as that we're to love each other and live in harmony. And there's, there's truth to that. Every major religion does teach that we're to love each other. But there's one point in which what Jesus taught and what the Bible says is completely different from Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and contemporary Judaism. 
There's one point that is absolutely different. There's others as well, but this is one I want to highlight today. One point that is absolutely unique that only Jesus taught, only the Bible teaches, and that is where love comes from. What all the other religions teach is that where love comes from is from you. Try harder. Be more diligent. Get with it. Put more effort and energy into it. You can do it. Here's what you're supposed to do. Do it. Try harder. Okay, that's what Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and present-day Judaism teaches. What Jesus taught, what the Bible teaches, is completely different. Jesus says, love each other. In fact, his description of love is higher than any other description of love. Remember, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. No one else talks that way. (laughs) Nobody else describes love like that. So Jesus calls us to love, yes, but he also says straight up, by yourself you can do nothing, John chapter 15. Nothing. But through his powerful work on the cross, when you trust him, what he did on the cross will change your heart and transform you into a new creation. You'll become a brand new person. And that'll happen moment by moment, day by day. His work in your heart, giving you love. Jesus, help me. He will give you love. Love comes from him. We love, yes. We're commanded to love, yes. But what Jesus said, what the scriptures teach that no one else says, is that God will put this love in your heart. He will pour his love into your heart so you will be enabled to love even if your spouse isn't loving. And we can see that in this passage. It's a little different Words. So look at what Paul says here, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, Forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let's just start off with the question, what is love? What what does it mean to love in this passage? And in verse 14, Paul says, above all these, put on love, which I think what he means is the previous things in verses 12 and 13... Love is like the umbrella over all these things, ties them all together. So Paul unpacks love with verses, the details in verses 12 and 13. So what does love look like? First, there's compassionate hearts and there's kindness. And what does that mean? That, that means that in your heart, towards your spouse, towards your friend, you desire his or her well-being. When you see them, you long for them to be doing well. When you see them, what you don't feel is jealousy or malice or bitterness or or unforgiveness. When you see them, the the feeling in your heart is compassion, kindness. You you want to see them doing well. And so so when your your husband comes home, say, and has had a a difficult day, you know, maybe, or maybe it's your wife or whatever, but you, you'll sit down and you'll engage them and you'll, you'll listen and you'll talk and you'll ask questions and you'll, you'll listen some more and you will care about the day that they've had. Not be thinking about what you're going to go do next, but you're going to be engaged. 
All right, thinking about it. Or maybe you come home and you know your wife's had a really tough day and you say, I'll take the kids to the park. And uh, you just put your feet up and relax because you, you care. You long for his or her well-being, okay? Or if your husband's had a bad day, you'll make him his favorite you know, jalapeno burritos or whatever it might be. But the point is, in your heart, what you feel is care, longing for his or her well-being. That's compassionate hearts and kindness. Second, humility and meekness. Those aren't real popular words today, but they're right there. Humility and meekness. What that means is that you put somebody else before yourself. You put your wife before you. you put your husband before you all the time. That's what we're supposed to, to, to have and to feel towards each other. So if you're going to the movies tonight, she probably doesn't want to see Rambo 10, okay? Right? So go to the chick flick, all right? Or... You know, on a, more, on a more serious note, maybe your spouse has been holding a grudge against you for a long time and has been withholding affection and intimacy and closeness. And to put your spouse first there would be to not hold that against her or him and to keep loving. That's humility and meekness. You feel how radical this call to love is? Third, patience bearing with one another and forgiving each other. I put those all together. We talked about forgiveness two weeks ago, so I'm not going to talk a lot about forgiveness today. You can listen to that online. Let's talk about patience and bearing with one another, because that kind of has to do with, you know, every couple, every spouse has things that the other, just about the other person, just kind of annoys them, right? It's not sin. They're not doing anything malicious, but they just kind of annoy you. They just bug you, right? Personality quirks. You're all looking like stunned, okay? All right? Okay, it's true. I'm right. Thank you. I know. Don't say it because then you'll have a discussion afterwards. But, um, you know, she overcooks the eggs, okay? Or he doesn't squeegee the shower or, you know, whatever it might be. Just little things that aren't sin. It's just kind of weird. You know, bugs you, right? Just kind of weird little stuff. And But those can become a problem, right? And so we're supposed to be patient and bearing with each other on those little quirks that rub us the wrong way. So that's what love is. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, being patient, and bearing with each other. Now, do you feel what a tall order that is? Now, do you realize that there's times where you don't have love for each other? Oh, that's love. Okay, I don't, I don't, I'm not quite as loving as I thought I was. Okay, so where does it come from? Look at this, it's right here in this passage. Look what Paul says in verses 12 through 14, and notice the words, put on. Really interesting. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Put on compassionate hearts. Kindness. Put on humility, meekness. Put on patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So Paul says, commands us, calls us to put on love. Put it on. In other words, there's something that you can do to be this way, right? Put it on. And this is a word, I brought my coat, even though it's kind of hot today. I want to kind of illustrate this. Okay. It's like, here's this coat, and... 
Can we turn this off so I don't... Okay, so there it is on the hanger. And like right now, the coat isn't on. Okay, there's no humility here. There's no meekness here. There's no compassion. There's no kindness. There's no patience. There's no forbearing. What would Paul say to me? Put it on. Sorry, Paul. Okay. All right. So, okay. Okay. That's what he's saying. All right. It's over here on the hanger. It's not in my heart. All right. I'm over here. Paul, I'm not loving. Paul would say, put it on. Oh, okay. See, sometimes we can think we get so mystical and kind of spiritual about it. We say, well, you know, love's got to be from God and I'm just waiting for him to zap me with it. Okay. Whenever he wants to, I will receive it. All right. Paul doesn't say, wait for God to give it to you. He says, it's there. Put it on. Okay. How? How do you put it on? And I think the answer, it's right there, but it's really easy to skip over it, is in those, I think it's seven words. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Wouldn't it be easy to skip over those words when you're reading it? Let's get to the practical part. But Paul put these in here for a reason. And I think, arguably, those seven words are maybe some of the seven most important words in this passage, at least in terms of how. I think what Paul is saying is this. As you understand and trust and feel the reality that you are chosen by God, made holy, beloved by God, as you sink your roots into those truths, as you live in the world of those truths, as, as those truths make up your worldview so that you know them, you trust them, you feel them, as you do that, you will have put on love. You look at your heart and you'll say, I've been changed. Now, let's, let's go through them one at a time so you can see this. Then we'll have some time for questions and answers and you can tell me if, if you agree. If this is what Paul's saying. What does it mean that you are God's chosen one? Put on then as God's chosen ones. This is the doctrine of election. Okay, Controversial doctrine. I would encourage you to study the scriptures on your own. To discover what the Bible teaches on this. Don't just take my word for it. My conviction is this. That God looked at me, Steve Fuller. And it's true of you too. If you're trusting Jesus, this is what's happened. He looked at me and he saw that I was a rebel against him with no interest in him, no faith, no repentance. My, my heart was ice cold rock hard. No interest in him whatsoever. And he looked at me as that, as I was, and he chose to punish Jesus for my sin and change my heart and save me. He chose me in that way. He didn't look ahead and see that I would believe. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. He looked ahead and saw that I would never believe unless he changed my heart. And so he looked at Steve Fuller, who was 100% deserving of eternal hell Period, open shut case, no protest. And he, in amazing mercy and love, chose me. He chose me. And if you're trusting Jesus, he chose you. 
And he chose to have all of your sins punished when Jesus died on the cross. He chose to, through Jesus' death on the cross, to purchase a new heart for you, a new creation, faith and repentance. And then in my case, in 1972, he brought his power upon me and he changed my heart and he gave me repentance. He gave me faith. I repented of my sins. I put my trust in Jesus and I was saved. 1972. Now here's the question. Why am I saved right now? Why is there some good in me, some love and some faith and some repentance. There's only one answer. It's because of God's mercy alone. Anything good in me is a gift bought through Jesus' suffering on the cross. I deserved eternal hell, and and you did too. And God, in breathtaking mercy, reached down from heaven and chose to save me. Why? Why? What was it that he saw in me? I'll tell you what he saw in me. Sin. Rebellion. Enmity against him. Okay, I'm just getting started. But that's the direction it's all going. That's what he saw in me. And that he would choose to save me, who was his enemy, is an awesome display of his love and his mercy. Now, it's my understanding of election. Now, what happens in my heart? What happens in your heart when you understand that you were sinful? It's all you were. And God saved you as you were. What happens in my heart is I am deeply humbled. It just pulls the rug out from under pride in me. It's like, all I deserve is hell and I am forgiven. I'm a new creation, I'm redeemed, I'm justified, I'm adopted, I'm loved. You're going to protect me and provide for me and guide me and comfort me and fill me and satisfy me and raise me from the dead and bring me into heaven. That's why in Revelation 5, all glory goes to you because of what he's done. Okay, now, I get humbled in the dust and his grace gets exalted. But now, why is this so important for love? It's, it's for this reason. One of the biggest things that will keep you from loving your spouse is your pride. It just is. Some of you right now, in your minds, even maybe this morning or yesterday, you've said things like, I deserve better. She owes me. Right? You have, haven't you? And those are all based on pride. I mean, let's get real. I deserve better. Do you know what you deserve? Let me put it personally so you're not offended as much. Do you know what I deserve? I deserve hell forever. And you do too. And when we start talking about I deserve better, we are not thinking about being chosen by God. That has vanished from our minds. But when you sink your roots deep into the doctrine of election, your heart will be humbled. You'll be broken before Jesus. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And just song after song. But see now, when you sink your roots into this doctrine of election, you will find that you are deeply humbled. And when you're deeply humbled, that fits in what Colossians chapter 3 verse 12 says. Humility and meekness. You will find humility and meekness in you because the rug will have been pulled out from under your pride. And you will not say, she owes me. I deserve better. You won't be able to talk to it because you'll know it's not 
true. Now, we could talk a lot about how you need to sit down together and talk things through, and there's times where we need to gently confront each other. There's place for that. I don't want to go there a lot because I want, to, I want you to really feel the humble and meek part of this here. When you sink your roots down deep into the teaching of election, it will deeply humble you. And we need to be humbled. I remember a man, maybe six years ago now, his wife left him and moved away. And he was, he was furious and, and hurt and crushed and broken and angry. Hard to blame him. Uh, a year later, I'm, I'm not sure what all, I'm not sure exact time frame, but, but at some point, his wife emailed him and said, I'd like you to, I'd like you to come. Would you come and see me? And it was, it was, it was repentant and it was friendly and it was cordial. It wasn't like, let's sign the papers. So I'd like you to come. And he called me up. Steve, what would you do? I said, I'd go in a heartbeat. Go. Today, go, now, go. It was a little ways away. He wouldn't go. So angry at her. In his pride, he says, if I go, I'll be like, like groveling or something. I said, grovel. Go. She's opened the door. Love her. You know what I mean? I say grovel, right? I mean, be strong in Christ, but the door's open. Go. Don't let your pride keep you from going. Well, he wouldn't go. And six months later, they were divorced. I don't know what, what would have happened if you would have gone. But do, do you feel the problem of pride in marriage? And so much of my, when I'm not loving Jan, it's, it's pride. And, and, and when you're not loving your spouse, it's pride. But if you will sink your roots deep, if you'll live in the, in the world of your God's chosen one, creator God, looked upon you, who's his rebel, and he chose to punish his son in your place and to save you, let that break your pride and fill you with humility, and you'll be meek, and you'll be humble, and you'll, you'll, you'll be putting that on. That's what you'll find when you, when you sink your roots into election. You will have put on meekness and humility. That's the first one. How about that we're holy? Paul says we are holy. I think that's the doctrine of regeneration. I like to put kind of doctrinal statements upon these so that you can see this in the overall picture of the Bible. What this means is that when God saved you, he changed you. He brought his saving power upon you, birthed a new nature in you which was holy. And from that moment on, in an ever-increasing way, you're going to be growing in holiness, loving Jesus more, trusting God's promises more, loving each other more. The point is, you are not the same person now as you were then. You are a new creation, brand new heart, brand new nature. You're holy now. He has made you holy. Now, why is that so important? Here's, why, here's how it helps me. When, when in my heart, I'm not feeling any compassion or love or kindness, and I think you probably relate to this, when, when you're not feeling that in your heart, you don't think you're ever going to feel that in your heart, right? I mean, this is how I'm, this is, I'm not feeling compassionate. I'm not being patient right now. That's kind of where it is. And this is never going to change, right? But see, what Paul would say is, understand, Fuller, you've been made holy. The, 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 the coat of compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and bearing with one another, Jesus bought that for you on the cross. It's there. Put it on. Yes, you're not wearing it now. 
put it on. It's bought for you. It's available to you. Jesus has given it to you. And so what I need to do is take the steps by sinking my roots deep into election, sinking my roots deep into regeneration, and then the third one we're going to come to in a second. And as I do that, I will have put on kindness and compassion and humility and meekness and patience and bearing with one another. So the point is that it's here. It's available, okay? You are holy. You've been changed. You have a new heart. You have a new nature. Yes, we don't live in that all the time, but it's there for you. And as you ask him for help, as you sink your roots deep into the truth of who he is, as you trust the gospel, you'll be changed and you'll be putting it on. That's how regeneration works. Third one, last one. We're beloved. Okay? That's the doctrine of adoption. We've got election, chosen by God. We've got regeneration, you're holy, and we've got adoption, you're beloved. Here's what this means. Because of Jesus, his death on the cross, the most important being in the universe, the most important being in the universe loves you. Not just people in mass, but you. In his heart, there is deep affection for you. All of his attention is on you all the time. And you, and you, and you, right? Because he's God, he can do that, okay? He is always thinking about you. He has sworn to protect you, to provide for you, to comfort you, to forgive you, to satisfy you, to strengthen you, to fill you. Everything that you need. As you look up to creator God, what's in his heart for you is burning, passionate love for you. Now, what happens when you understand that and trust that and feel that? Two things happen to me. One is uh, worry or fear that's in my heart gets washed away, right? When I see that God, creator God, sovereign, good, wise God loves me, worry and fear diminishes. And... If my heart's been empty, kind of bored, like I'm not really very satisfied, his love fills me. I get emptied of the bad stuff, and I get filled with his all-satisfying presence. And what happens when the bad stuff gets emptied out, and the good stuff comes filling in? What happens is that there's an overflow of love for Jan, and for Brad, and for Anna, and for elders, and home group leaders, and my home group. That's what happens. See? Because... What keeps us from loving is having either your heart full of fear and worry or having your heart be empty, right? Empty hearts don't love. Fearful, worried, angry hearts don't love. But when you sink your roots deep into God's love for you, his adoption, you are now his son, daughter, adopted. He's your father. The worry and the fear goes away because you see his promises, which are for you. Your heart gets filled with his love. His love is better than life. And the overflow of that will be love for your spouse. That's how it works. Okay, election, regeneration, and adoption. So how do you become more loving? And let's open it up to some questions. How do you become more loving? Before we answer that question, what do you do when you find that you're not very loving? I mean, do you just like try hard? Do you think I'm supposed to? I'll try to be more patient. See, that's not what the Bible, that's not how Jesus talks. What he says is, sink your roots deep into the truth of his choosing of you, making you holy, how you're beloved by God, 
And as you sink your roots deep into those realities, understand them, trust them, feel them, experience them, you will notice that your heart's been changed. You will have put on. So that's the answer to the question, how to become more loving. It's by sinking your roots deep into God's choosing of you. God's making you holy. God's love for you in Christ. When you do that, you will be loving. Now flip it around. When you're not loving, it's because you're not sinking your roots deep into these realities. It's just the truth. But that's good news, because when you do sink your roots deep, you will be loving. So what questions does this raise? How's this work? Do you, do you buy that? Is that what Paul's saying here? So might it be helpful first, or it was one of the first steps, to, to bring this person into a loving relationship with a brother or a sister? And how, how, are, how are you in the Lord? Are you feeling God's love for you? Are you trusting the cross? Are you experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit in your life first? Yeah. I would, yeah, I would totally agree. There's, there's, there's steps. There's, there's ste- definitely steps to get the coat put on. Yeah. Yeah, big time. And I hope if this is your question, I hope you're sensing that this morning is that we wanted, we would love the honor of coming alongside you and supporting you through this. We would count it an honor. Um, and so please don't keep this to yourself if this is your question. Um, myself, my wife, your home group leader, his wife, you know, we, we, would, we would love to, to support you. So good question, good comments. It's not as easy as walking over and putting a coat on. Let's just throw that one out there, okay? It's, it, there's a little more involved, but, but it's, it's, it's right there. It is possible. So to share that privately with the home group leader, wife, and, and let me just use this. Don, you always have wise things to say, but just to throw out the importance of confidentiality on many, 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 many different issues, okay? Jesus talks about going to a brother or sister in uh, to going to them alone if you have a concern about them. So Jesus is raising up the issue of confidentiality and privacy. So in this situation, yes, and in many other situations, let's work on that. That's just wisdom, and it'll, it avoids a lot of pain and difficulty. We're, we're trying to be close as a church together and share a lot of stuff, so we need to work on confidentiality as well. Yeah, there's... There's heart and actions that are both important. We don't want actions without heart and pretend that that's fine. That's hypocrisy. We don't want to wait until our heart is perfectly right before we take any actions. You might need to bite your tongue and not say what you want to say. Say, God, forgive me. My heart's not quite there yet, but I want to be patient at this point. Help my heart to get in place. And I think he would smile upon that. That's all part of the the, the complexity of moving towards putting it on. All right? Let's just throw that out. What are some of the differences between love and romance in your mind? Let's see. Let's have the body con- contribute here. What, how are they different? See, I, I think, isn't, isn't romance the fruit of love? Um, isn't love a commitment? I, I've, I've, I've sworn before God, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, it's a commitment to continue to love and care and serve this person as long as we both shall live. And so I serve, I'm compassionate, I'm seeking to be humble and patient and forbearing. And then as two people do that together, the fruit of that is romance. There's affection, right? There's sexual intimacy and pleasure, right? There's joy in the relationship. But that can rise and fall depending on sickness and unemployment and financial difficulties and all kinds of other things. But love should not rise and fall because love comes from these unchanging realities. You're chosen by God, you've been made holy, and he loves you. Okay, so, so I was taking the question that she was saying that the romance had gone. Okay, he or she, I don't know who it is. If he or she was saying, not only has romance gone, but 
I no longer love my spouse, then I would still give the same counsel that I'm giving, though, and I would say, you can love your spouse again by sinking your roots deep into God chose you, and he's made you holy, and he loves you. And marinate your soul in those truths and live in those truths and fullness and strength and, and love for your spouse will return, I think. And then over time, possibly romance could, could return. Is, am I, is that helping? So, I mean, we don't want to ask this person, what, what do you mean? And, and listen more. I don't want to, you know, obviously listening would be a very important first step here. I, th- I think romance can deepen and mature and season and mellow. It's like fine wine. I think romance can will, will mature and grow over the years, definitely. So um, I, I think I'm in agreement with that. We've got to take that in. That's where love comes from, right? I mean, what's the verse in First John? We love because he first loved us. So when I'm not loving, I'm not understanding, trusting, receiving his love for me. I'm not but I can, and then I'll be able to love. Oh, this is good news. This is the gospel. Okay, it's the cross. Everything you need is for you. Never fails. Thank you. First Corinthians 13 would be a great passage to, to meditate on. Well, let's pray together. You've chosen us in Christ. You've made us holy through Christ. And you've loved us in Christ. And we have received wealth, spiritual wealth and riches beyond our wildest imagination because of your mercy. I pray, Lord, that you would help us sink our roots deep into the gospel, into the cross, into election and regeneration and adoption and live in these realities and love these realities. And that as we do that, we would be compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient and bearing with each other in our marriages, in our home groups, with our children, with everyone we meet for the glory of your name. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen.